This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. I saw all the oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. You're listening to Imaginary Worlds. Now, Merrick Malinsky. So back in 2004, I started working in public radio as an intern at Studio 360, a show about arts and culture hosted by Kurt Anderson from PRI and WNYC in New York. And I stayed with Studio 360 for over a decade, taking on many different roles there. And during most of my time, my mentor and my editor was David Krasnow. What that means is I would pitch an idea for a story, I would go record the interviews, then I'd edit down my sound bites, write narration around it, and then shoot him an email saying, all right, I'm ready for an edit. And then over the phone, I would read my narration to him and then hold the phone up to my computer speaker and play those sound bites. So from his end, it should sound like a stripped down, raw version of the radio story. And then he'd give me notes. Sometimes they were light, often they were not. So today I want to play for you two stories that we worked on together, where I felt like I finally found my voice as a reporter and talk with David about how that happened. So what were some of like the rookie mistakes do you remember long, long time ago when I first started with you? I mean, that was a long time ago. We're talking, <laughs> are, are we being transparent? Oh, hell yeah. Are we being transparent here about yeah. how long ago this was? We're talking more than a decade. Yeah, neither. We did not have gray hair either um, back then. And I and I don't think I would have known what the rookie mistakes were because I was also sort of a rookie in a way. Like when you started making stories, I had probably only been an editor there for a year or something. Oh, really? Yeah. So See, I, I didn't know you seem, I mean, everybody there, if someone had been there six months before me, I would have thought they were like a veteran. Right. Yeah. A super old timer. No, I started in 2003. And although I had already been working as an editor in print, like I think I managed to convey that like illusion that editors do of like, I know what I'm talking about and you should listen to me. <laughs> they come up with like a set of catchphrases that, yeah. that they hope work in terms of giving guidance and direction, which right. I feel like is, is probably what, what you and I developed over the years. Like here are the catchphrases that work for Eric. Oh, really? What yeah. were they? More signposting. You came up with that for me? I thought you said that for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, I also said it for other people, maybe 99% of other people. No, not everybody. Need, well, almost everybody does need more signposting um, because it's something that you only do in a radio story. You don't need to do it in a written story, um, but you do do it naturally when you tell someone a story. Like in, in that mythical moment, we always talk in radio about Oh, you know, tell the story as though you were telling your friends in a bar. Mm -hmm. And if you're in the bar with your friends, you actually signpost really heavily. You go, no, 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 no. Wait, look, no, this is the important part. This is amazing. Listen. Oh, and then also I remember um, the other thing you had to get out of me was sounding like Ira Glass because I was such a fan of This American Life. Well, we both suffered from that. Did you too? Oh, you didn't know that? No, because you would always be like, you know, you're doing Ira again. Stop it. Oh, well, I hope <laughs> I was. I hope I was sympathetic. I mean, 
you know, we both, we both, I think, became really like attracted to this as a medium in the wake of This American Life in yeah. the, you know, whatever, late 90s, early 2000s. And there was no other show that sounded like it for so long. Right. Uh, the first piece I did, I was doing some tracking and the person who was engineering the session was Steve Nelson, who was then one of the producers or technical directors. And after my, like my first tracking, which I thought sounded really pretty great, he said, that was not bad. Uh, why don't you take that, try that again, Ira? Wow. And it, was, it was very, it was humiliating, but I, but I didn't, I didn't really have a voice. Hmm. All right. So let's listen to Cal Earth. Um, the connection to sci-fi fantasy is a little tangential. This is the first time I learned how to gather tape on the ground and recognize that the people I was interviewing were characters. And that was the other thing, too, is that in public radio, I was so surprised how many people refer to the people in their story as characters. Uh, it was so strange to me because I came from L.A. where you, you're, you know, screenwriters yeah. obviously talk about characters. And I yeah. was like, but they're real people. They're not characters. Well, but we used to talk about casting a story in the same way that you would cast a play. Yeah. And in I mean, this is a big difference between features and news. If you're reporting the news, you have to go to the person who has the information closest to the news source, either the news source him or herself or whoever you can get who is the closest. And if that person sounds terrible on tape and if they speak really badly you're stuck with them and you just talk around it you try to talk around it but in a feature um where you have this ability to you know if if an artist is not very well spoken but she has an assistant who talks a mile a minute and is fun and engaging then the assistant becomes the main character in the story um and so the casting of it you know who is really going to sell this to your listeners i mean if the, almost the definition of a feature is you know i don't really have to listen to it so make me want to yeah. I want to back up one sec because yeah. you said that that this story is only tangentially related to what you cover in imaginary worlds mm -hmm. um, because it vague because it has well people will hear why on, yeah. a, on a surface it's a real place on a surface aesthetic level it it is related but actually what this guy was doing I would say was in fact a was a utopian vision of the future right. like it was he his vision was a kind of science fiction that he wanted to make happen in reality but mm. it was it was the kind of broad stroke utopian change in society that science fiction is like totally made of especially from the 70s which was big and yeah no he was like he was like ursula le guin with buildings instead of novels oh that would have been a good line that i should have used God, that that is that is really trashy <laughs> that was so trashy let's keep it let's keep it rudy burden and nora murphy live a pretty sweet life they're artists who work on cartoon shows like The Simpsons. They live in a charming neighborhood of bungalows just off Hollywood Boulevard. But they secretly dream of living in a giant igloo made of dirt. And here's Caller, you can see on your right. Oh my god. Yeah, it's, it's totally, totally different. We drove an hour east of LA to the town of Hesperia. As I entered Cal Earth, I felt like I was walking onto the set of Luke Skywalker's home. Like Star Wars and Lord of the Rings put together. The connection to outer space is not a coincidence. The idea for these houses came from a lunar colony. It started out as a NASA project, designed by the Iranian architect Nadir Khalili, who just passed away in March. When I spoke with him last fall, he believed that his designs would catch on, here on Earth, if only people would start asking the right questions. After the disasters, the question is wrong when we ask, when is FEMA coming? What type of insurance do you have? What is the problem in the rest of the world? They ask always, when is UN coming? That the right question is, why are buildings burn? Why are they falling apart in hurricane? Why are they this? That is the question that will be the basis of a great solution. 
I took a walk through the domes with my friends, Rudy and Nora. The early ones are very simple. They're almost like mosques. Eventually, we made our way to a super adobe ranch house. It's meant to be in the same league as the suburban homes that surround Keller. Hallways or anything, they just stacked the, the arch is like a pyramid, and so you just weave in and out of the rooms, which is really nice. We're underground right now. I mean, yeah, pretty much, yes. Calarth is probably the only place in Asperia that doesn't need air conditioning. The cool air from the night gets trapped in the domes. But it also gives you this amazing view. This has got to be the strangest view out of a kitchen window I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then there's this beautiful little uh, earth dome house right across the street. The neighbors got it too. Showing up at Cal Earth is almost like showing up at a casting call for Southern California characters. There's an Indian chief, Charles Wood, of the Chimoabian tribe. For me, to build a house, that cement truck has to come 80 miles. And here I see a possible answer for my people. Jim Guerra represents Mexican migrant farm workers. They work in flowers and strawberries. And like most farm workers today, they live on the ground. There's no housing, no toilets, no showers. Savannah Sierra Glazer came here from Santa Monica with her fiancé. They're shopping for houses. I'm not sure what that dome over there is called, the big, big, big one. Mm-hmm. We'd like that to be the center and have like four, no, six of the little eco-domes around it, connected to it. So something like that where it would develop community for the people that we invite over. Because mm. we like to entertain a lot of people. River Oliveira just has a thing for domes. Well, yeah, that's what domes do. They give that kind of energy. The, the electromagnetic field, it, it functions in that method. Huh. So when you're in it, you're part of it. That's very beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Life's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Breathing's beautiful. <laughs> But the super adobes are more than funky. They're sturdy. Phil Vittori is a structural engineer. Now, uh, I started when I was 20, uh, I think I was 24 years old, and I'm 70 now, so uh, that's a lot of years in the dome business. He collaborated with Kalili for 10 years, and they shared an appreciation for the simple physics of a curve. If you take a stick and put it between two points and you put a weight in the center, you'll see the stick deflects downward. If you take that same stick and you curve it into an arch, when you put weight on it, it does not bend downward. Now, if you take an arch and you rotate the arch through 360 degrees, you end up with a dome. Kalili got the seal of approval from the UN and FEMA, but local building and planning departments have been the biggest hurdle. Their codes only cover traditional housing. I had to bring in the uh, text of analyzing a dome for the building department and then run the numbers for them and then teach them how to read the text. Otherwise, they had no idea how to evaluate the design. A lot of people told me they were frustrated with the pace of progress, but Kalili was always patient. He knew he had inspired a movement. As my son was suggesting, he says one of the ways that we can get it into American uh, market is to do some sitcoms in these structures. <laughs> and he may be right, you know. You know the sitcom, everybody feels comfortable and funny and experience all of these, and then they'll uh, want it. 
Something that was really powerful here, actually, is that you chose to start with your friends. Your friends are actually kind of the, they are sort of a MacGuffin. Like they don't really matter. We don't come back to them in the end, but they're <laughs> there with so you. True. But the fact that you went somewhere with friends is something that really pulls us into the story. And I think the next piece we're going to listen to also has a friend in it. But that's a really important device, mm. I think, because it makes me, you're not a disembodied, like, voice of God journalist here. You're, you're a guy who went out and had a little adventure with some people that you knew. And I can totally relate to that. Well, the, one of the things that I thought was interesting when I was working with you over the years, well, still working with you, but I mean, working with you at Studio 360 was... Um, how much you encouraged me to put myself in the pieces. And I was shocked. I was just like, that's not what a journalist is supposed to do. For me, having you in the story actually is more a matter of journalistic honesty. Hmm. Like for me, there's something really honest about that. I, I always want to know, well, how did you hear about this story? Like journalists are not gods who receive information or who have like, you know, who are tapped into the all-knowing uh, like some like NSA software that tells them everything in the planet that's going on. Like you know, there are two ways you hear about things. You read it online or a friend told you. For me, that moment of here's how I came to the story is an important thing in kind of take, bringing your listeners, like inviting your listeners to take this little journey of discovery with you that I think every good piece of feature reporting, like you should discover something, you should go on a journey of some kind. Coming up, the first time I planted the seeds of imaginary worlds. That's just after the break. All right, so let's listen to viral marketing. Um, this is an incredible time capsule. I didn't know uh, that 2008 could feel like another era, <laughs> but this truly feels like when I first when I listened back to this the other day, I was like, "Oh my god!" There's a reference to viral videos. Oh, here, it gets, and it, it, someone it, explains what a viral video is. Oh, the whole piece is that, but it gets even it gets even more 2008-ish than that. But here we go. <laughs> I was surfing the web last summer. I don't remember how I got on this website, but it was a political ad for Harvey Dent, district attorney. Unless you're a fairly devoted Batman fan, you don't know that Harvey Dent is Two-Face. Now, of course, I knew that Harvey Dent was Two-Face, and I knew that Harvey Dent was gonna be a villain in the new Batman movie. But what was really cool was that somebody had defaced the picture of Harvey Dent with green hair and red lipstick. And I followed a series of clues, which led me to another website, and that showed the first picture of Heath Ledger as the Joker. Let's put a smile on that face. <laughs> it's an absolutely brilliant move to, to go for those core fans. Those are the ones you want to energize first. Presumably, they start energizing the people around them. By the way, this is Stephen Tornquist. He's the editor of Marketing Sherpa, which is a website read by industry insiders. He says this kind of viral marketing works like a dog whistle. Only Batman fans are able to hear the pitch, but once the whistle is blown, we start barking. I thought the ad was so cool, I emailed the link to a bunch of friends. In marketing in general, the thing you want more than anything else is word of mouth. Okay. Ave? Yes. Do you remember last summer uh, me sending you links to the new Batman movie, like Heath Ledger stuff? Yeah, I, well, I specifically do remember that because I, I think that you are my, my kind of my nerd link. And you kind of you keep me up to date on all the nerdy things that you know that I like, and that I'm too lazy to actually find out myself. What did you do after you saw the link? I came home. I'm like, Batman looks really cool. I think we have. I guess it takes a nerd to know a nerd. 
The authority on viral marketing, who's a bit of a nerd himself, is Douglas Rushkoff. He wrote a book in the 90s called Media Virus, and he was trying to describe the way certain scandals will saturate our entire culture, you know, like O.J. Simpson. And he was really surprised that a lot of the fan mail he was getting was from advertisers. Some of them are from the advertising agency that did the Calvin Klein underwear ads. That oh, you know, we came up with these ads showing kids in their underwear, knowing that people would be upset by them and they'd force us to take them off the air because they would think of it as child porn, but that we'd get more secondary media because of the viral component. What, what kind of jeans are those? Calvin Klein. Do you like them? Yeah, they're comfortable. They're like... And it's true, you know, and it was a huge story for a few weeks. Viral marketing also works in politics. Yeah, well, everyone's watching this online. It's called I Got a Crush on Obama. In the old business of campaign ads, this unauthorized video is creating a lot of new buzz. What are they called? Videos, right? They're called what? Viral YouTube's. Video. Viral, viral videos. videos. And what means a viral video? What does it mean? It's, it's a- Last summer, an ad exec named Ben Rellis made a music video to promote his website, BarelyPolitical.com. I've Got a Crush on Obama featured a scantily clad babe swooning over the presidential contender. Rellis posted the video on YouTube. A couple days later, everyone wanted to talk to him. And in those interviews, they were really interested in a much bigger story than the video. They were really interested in who's behind this and will this hurt his campaign and who are we voting for. Obama Girl went viral for one big reason. It addressed a forbidden topic. Douglas Rushkoff explained this to me. A media virus can only spread if it can find some kind of confusion in our cultural DNA. In other words, Barack Obama has major sex appeal. And we're not really supposed to talk about that. But Obama girl can. People don't like seeing an attractive white person singing about an attractive African American. You can Barack me tonight. Viral marketing must have that special ingredient. Otherwise, it's just an advertising gimmick. Like with this Batman movie, the first picture I saw of Heath Ledger as the Joker, the picture that inspired me to email my friends, it did not look like a publicity shot of an actor. It looked like the kind of picture you'd see on MySpace, someone just extending their arm and taking a digital picture of themselves. It was like a self-portrait of a serial killer. So much of MySpace now is about predators. The fact that there, that there's this sick, psychopathic adult, the Joker, out there on MySpace with your kids, potentially infecting them with all the bad that Joker does, is really the perfect migration of the Batman mythology into yet another medium. Joe Denuzio runs the agency behind the Batman campaign. It's called 42 Entertainment. He unleashed this virus onto the world, but he's squeamish about the term viral marketing. He prefers alternative reality game. If you're engaged and you share your creativity and passion with someone else, that's a much more powerful message than anything that we could ever do. So really what we've done is we've, you know, we've activated you and engaged you. We've given you the framework, but the communities that we see building around what we do really are activated, controlled, owned, and driven by the audience themselves. And here I am talking about this movie on public radio giving them free advertising. I should be quarantined, at least until The Dark Knight comes out in theaters on, on July 18th, in case you're wondering. I'm Batman. So, David, my big question is, do you still worry about predators on MySpace? 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> my daughter, who has never heard of MySpace. Um, no, I mean we can make fun of MySpace, but uh, but sure. There, I mean, yeah, I mean, do I worry about my child on other social media right, yeah. that now exists now? Like, yeah, sure. Yeah. And there's a moment in the piece where you refer to one of those pictures where you just extend your arm and take the picture yeah. of yourself because the word selfie was not in common use. That was amazing. That that caught me off guard because that's that's actually you. <laughs> that's you not having the word. You know, we're you know yeah. we're making fun of the news people for talking about viral videos, but actually that word just hadn't entered our lexicon yet. And there's no Twitter or Facebook, so I'm emailing links to everything. Right, you're emailing links <laughs> when that was a thing. Yes, and um and then like and then you bring your friend in. Uh, and then you make fun of her <laughs> okay. for being a nerd. That you suggest. So this is what is interesting to me is that that I remember an early draft as well. I made no distinction between whether the audience would be as interested in this as I would. And this is something that I remember we had a conversation about is kind of like playing to your audience, you know, and sort of the idea of there's some 60 year old businessman driving home from work. He turns on public radio. Mike at Marketplace. Instead, I'm geeking out over Batman. How do you talk to that guy? Yeah, I mean, you have this, but you have a podcast that we're listening to that also is a kind of community. And you understand that the people who are coming to you are part of that community. And so you don't have that sort of self-consciousness now about whether what you are talking about in any given moment is nerdy or not. Right. So I don't know. Did I force the nerdy angle on you too hard? Do you think that was a mistake? No. I mean, I think for a general... I think for a general piece, because um, we did an hour on Superman um, for American Icons Hour, and we did not do a like, okay, folks, we're going to geek out. We just did it as straight as we covered The Great Gatsby or The Lincoln Memorial. And we got a bunch of really angry listener ma emails of people just like, I don't listen to NPR to hear about a stupid comic book character. Like, I didn't I, remember that. Oh, yeah. I was shocked. Uh, there were just a lot of people were just appalled that they were like, I can't believe my good public radio money is going to this dumb comic book character. <sighs> God damn it. <laughs> I mean, and I'm not even like, I'm not even a comic book fan, but but that piece, which everyone should go and listen to, yeah. um, that hour is an incredible hour. That hour will that hour will make you cry. Like that that hour really goes places that, you know, not like Krypton, <laughs> you know, like real places, emotional yeah. places. But definitely with my podcast, I was glad that I don't have to... Um, I don't have to do that anymore to some extent. I sort of, I expect that you're with me. And it, it, the only thing that I expect people don't know is not everyone is a fan of everything, but I do constantly think about somebody who's listening right now who knows everything about this subject. And there's somebody listening who knows nothing. And, you know, how do I, how do I write in the middle? You there? still are writing that even though, even though your, your podcast is a narrower community of people who are interested in this yeah. area, you still think about that. Well, I, one like, thing who that, knows what? Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's always going to be somebody out there who who thinks of themselves as a total nerd or geek, but they really don't like the particular subject I'm about to go into. And so that person, too, I need to be like, oh, no, come on, it's going to be interesting. <laughs> yeah. See, I brought a friend. Um, all right, so should we get out of this, um, my, my sweaty office where I've had to close the windows and doors so that we have some good sound? It and... has actually been a total pleasure doing this because these okay. stories were really important for me, like in kind of learning this craft and learning how to articulate things and in developing something of a style for Studio 360 and how we wanted to tell stories on that show that were that were different from other, you know, programs covering the arts or, or you know, different than what we would hear on the arts desk at NPR. And figuring some of these things out, I mean, we, we really did that together. David Krausnow is now the executive producer of the New Yorker Radio Hour, where he is still assigning me stories, although in this case, I'm helping New Yorker staff writers turn their prose into audio. 
And I still work occasionally with Studio 360, but my main focus is this podcast. I have hired an editor on a few occasions, Carrie Hillman, uh, but most of the time I play a rough mix of each episode for my wife, Serena. She's a former TV news producer and gives me great notes. I often say she is my secret weapon. Imaginary Worlds is part of the Panoply Network. You can also help support the show by going to Patreon to sign up for regular donations. Huge, huge thanks to everybody who has already signed up. It really helps. I have a link to my Patreon page, my site, imaginaryworldspodcast.org.